3: I've got a question. Are you entertained by crime? And I don't mean do you look out the window and see a robbery and applaud it. What I mean is, is we've got documentaries, we've got TV dramas, we've even now got quiz shows, all of which have got an element of crime and suspense and drama within them. So what's going on? How does that integrate into society? And we've got three perfect guests to discuss this, because all of them are now prominent media figures, but they all got very different origin stories. So this is Stop and Search on Scroobies Pips Distraction Pieces Network brought to you by Acast in Association Elite UK. Here we go. Behind your barricade. Yeah, how long Could not wish for better guests because the conversation flowed as on this one. We've got Aaron Roach-Bridgeman, Bridgman, is a documentary maker. He's done films for Channel 5, 5 Star, Kids That Kill, 8 Years Old and Smuggling Drugs. These are hard-hitting documentaries, so please go and watch them. We've also got Danny Brooke, who is a hunter. Danny's got a background in policing, covert operations, surveillance. So to listen to Danny on this subject is, is much, much needed. And of course, we've got the chief, the chief hunter himself, Peter Blexley. He is an author, he has done Gangbusters, On The Run and also his latest Catch A Killer. We've also got Peter on the themes of his, his own background as well which not just in policing but also he goes into some personal things as well. So thank you so much, Pete, for being open and honest with us on this. So without me rambling on, let's get straight into this. Are we entertained by crime? What we like to do is to get our guests to introduce themselves. I don't know if you listen to the Infinite Monkey Cage on BBC Channel Radio 4, or whatever it is. Um, but, no, So, Basically, if you could just introduce yourself, what you do, uh, it just helps when we introduce it on the podcast when it actually goes out on a some kind of quasi-professional release.
1: So, Aaron. If you can introduce yourself. Um, good evening. Oh, is it evening yet or is it still afternoon? It's evening, right? The clock's just changed. So. Yeah, yeah, it's changed. I'm still in the past. Um, good evening, everybody. My name is Aaron roach bridgman um, I am a presenter, a documentary maker, a producer. Um, I've done quite a few powerful sociopolitical um, documentaries with Channel 5. Um, most recently, I've had one come out called Eight Years Old and Smuggling Drugs. And, um, yeah, very powerful stuff. I'm working on one right now called When Kids Kill... And, um, yeah, uh, hopefully the conversation will be a bit more jovial. But um, what I've been making has been a bit a bit intense. But it's been, it's been great work, and I'm very proud to have made the shows that I've made. Yeah. Brilliant. Can we have a round of applause for Aaron?
3: <laughs> Peter, the media professional there, just making sure we, we know he's in the house. And Danny, can we have an introduction from you, please?
2: Yeah, sure. My name's Danny Brooke. Um, I'm also from Hunted and um Channel 4, and I've also done Celeb Troll Trackers on Channel 5. Prior to that, I joined the Met Police at age 18, where I ended up working in the covert unit for I think it was just 10 years, um, specialising in drugs, sex, crimes, crimes, not just sex, um, and um, guns, that sort of thing, um, which was exciting. Um, I'm no longer in the police, I now work alongside my colleague here Heather um, and we do intelligence investigation across the board so it's not just doom and gloom sometimes it's actually really fun um, yeah
3: round of applause for Danny <laughs> and Peter Peter is the author of the book we got over here on the run and just down here and also gangbuster which I've got in my case down there so Peter we have a quick introduction
0: thank you yeah my name's Peter Blexley I was a Scotland Yard drug squad cop a long, long time ago, back in the 80s, when Ronald Reagan was banging on about the war on drugs and we were following in America's footsteps, more of that later perhaps. Um, I retired from the cops. I was, I was medically retired from the cops because I had a breakdown in connection with my work, which led to me living in the witness protection programme. Drugs have featured as an enormous part of my life, being part of what was called the War on Drugs. And then when I retired from the cops, I missed the buzz, and I myself developed a problematic drug habit. So when it comes to the drug industry, I've kind of savored it from the very pinnacle to the depths. I feel I'm well qualified to talk about it. Um, These days, I'm a writer, I write books, I uh, I am the chief on Channel 4's Hunted. One of my proudest achievements is that I'm 14 years clean and will be for the rest of my life. But I look forward to taking part in this conversation. What an introduction.
3: <laughs> See, that's just the perfect introduction, Peter, because this is a really tricky subject that you do walk well, the tightrope on, that if you are an authority on the subject, which you completely were in your past job, being covert uh, undercover operations, but then you've also got the personal side of it as well. You've recently seen what it's like to go through the drug cycle and everything. Um, Have you ever found that people belittle one side or the other based on what their own perception and prejudice is?
0: I, I think there's an awful lot of ignorance out there regarding drugs. I think there's a lot of fear about drugs. And I think that's why the drug reform movement has got an uphill battle in front of it. But it's a battle that can be won. What people need to appreciate and realise, which Leap do such a great job in promoting, is that it was a war that never could be won, albeit I was deluded when I was 25 years old and I walked through the revolving doors, proud as punch that I'd become a Scotland Yard detective. Everybody was telling me this war can be won. They were throwing money and resources at us. And we were having what we thought were towering successes in taking out organized cartel, organized gangs, call them what you want. We thought we were doing good. But of course, what we were actually doing was taking part in an enormous job creation scheme. And so I fervently believe in the need for drug law reform. I've savoured just about every aspect of the industry. I detest drugs. I absolutely detest them and will never go near an illegal drug ever again in my life. But that doesn't mean to say that I want to stop other people who do choose to use drugs from doing that. It's their choice. It should be their choice. They shouldn't be criminalised for it. Well, what we really need to do, and I won't hog all the airtime now, because hopefully I'll talk about it later, but we need to wrestle this global industry out of the hands of organised crime. There are various estimates that the, the industry across the world is worth 300, 400, 500 billion dollars a year. Well, would we let organised crime run our railways? Would we let organised crime run our health service? But this is the scale of the industry that we're talking about. Why on earth would we let criminals run such a massive industry? We must wrestle it from them.
3: It won't be easy. And I've said enough for the time being. I don't know about that, because, uh, I mean, you've just hit on so many points there, it's just, again, just completely lit my brain up with things, but it, reading your book, which uh, Gangbuster, which are published, what, when was it first published, was it in the early 2000s? Yeah, the,
0: the, the Gangbuster was published back in 2001, and it opened doors for me, which I'm still walking through today, uh, but then it got
3: republished in 2017, and it's okay and and that's been really interesting is watching that that transition because you were very clear even in 2000s that you think that some degree of job law reform is needed should be and is possible um but you almost had an evolution since then haven't you into more of a nuanced position as well of what you do advocate haven't you
0: yes i have I, i i believed and i left the book deliberately unaltered um from the 2001 version to the 2017 version because it's a snapshot in time and I felt felt that it would have lacked credibility if I'd started tinkering around the edges. I wanted people to see it for what it was. And yes, I advocated a form of of, of of a more liberal way of dealing with drugs back then. Then what happened after that was I very rapidly descended into my own mire of drug use because I was chasing the adrenaline I wanted to get that buzz that working undercover had given me, and I foolishly went out and thought I'd be Jack the Lad in a very undignified way at 40 odd years of age, I most definitely should have known better, and I essentially became a problematic drug user. Uh, That came around very, very quickly, and fortunately I managed to shrug that habit off purely and simply because my wife took me to the abyss, held my head over the edge and said that's what you stand to lose, that's where you're going, you stand to lose everything. It focused the mind, I grew up, I had a bit of a struggle um, to, uh, to finally leave it but essentially what I needed to leave behind were the damaging people that had crept into my life and once I'd got rid of them, then things slotted into place. And, um, as I say, that was 14 years ago, and, um,
3: and life has never been better. And, and Danny, you, you went into the force really young, didn't you? You signed up at 18. Um, yeah. Did you have preconceived ideas on drug policy or anything like that as you were going into the force?
2: I think um, I'm from a really big family, um, and my mum's youngest brother, um, he OD'd. He took too much. We all knew he had a problem. None of us knew how to deal with it, and he died. So that was one thing that kind of always... I just didn't understand why we didn't help him. We didn't know how to, was the answer. But as a child, you don't know that. Um, Going into the police, I just saw... I'll be honest, I just saw it as they're druggies. It's what we do. We just have to arrest them, and we have to put them through the court system and the processes. It was only when I started actually looking at it from the covert aspect... These people would get arrested and their shoes would be filled within an hour of them being arrested and someone else would be doing it. We wasn't stopping the problem or helping the users. We were just still fulfilling the, the dealers. So we were still they were still making lots and lots of money, like Black said, like hundreds of thousands of pounds. But the only people that were actually suffering were the users and the little street runners that were just being used by the big boys. Um, so I didn't know. In answer to that, I didn't have a clue what I was getting myself into. So
3: was it progressional? Did you have... Any kind of Damascus moment, or was it just a, an integration into the work that you did? It just come with the ideas.
2: Yeah, it was absolutely a progression. I would be honest to that. I was very, um, what's the word? Um, sort of regimented. I thought that I knew the best because I was a police officer, and what I thought everyone else wanted, I wanted. So I just kind of stuck with what they, what, what I was told to believe in. Because I was young, I didn't understand. And I think the time that I actually realised it what is going on was seeing a baby <coughs> withdrawing off of heroin. If we were looking after her mum and it was all regulated, that would never have happened.
3: And that's happening more and more. we see that, especially over in America.
2: If you've ever seen it, it's the most horrific thing you'll ever see. And I've seen some horrific things, but a baby coming off of... or withdrawing off of heroin is... It's not right.
3: So those preconceptions make sense don't they? there's a logical fallacy within it that if drugs are so bad in quotation marks then laws are good it means that we're protecting people so the naivety that you've just explained isn't necessarily the fault of anybody within our circles or anything it's just, again just we've got this preconceived mindset haven't we of what drug laws are did you find that the people that you were protecting general citizens and things. Did they subscribe along with you as well? Did you get a feeling that you were doing a good job based on the feedback you were getting?
2: Well, yeah, as soon as you arrest someone for drug offences, even if it's just a person using drugs, you're getting a massive pat on the back. You've done a great job. You've got an arrest um, figure for the the big bosses. Um, Well done, you've got another one in the bin. Off you go, nice job. In fact, here's a commendation. You've done so well on that arrest because you've taken that person's heroin off of them. Have a commendation. So you just become... The word I was looking for was institutionalised.
3: Very good word, yes. <laughs> and and this is why this panel is just so fascinating to me because, Aaron, you've got the other side of the spectrum, which is you've been recently speaking to the people that are very much caught up in this issue. The, your documentary, Eight Years and Smuggling Drugs, was just... Mind-blowing that the fact that we are getting children as young as that now that are being put into the big leagues of drug smuggling and going country. Um, can you explain what going country is first of all?
1: Um, yeah. Um, well, a lot of the uh, the uh, I don't like calling them gangs, but groups. Uh, they go OT. OT means out of town, or it means going to country, and it's basically where um, you know in a in a major city like London, for instance, there's, there'll be a lot of competition, so to speak, with um, drug dealing. So what you would do, you'd find a a, a town that's a little less busy, maybe a little less uh, populated with drug dealers, and they would um, send members of their of their group up there to sell drugs. Um, a lot of times, they will send the young kids with the drugs up there because they're seen as less likely to be stopped by the police. And um, in many cases, uh, the kids stay up in these areas for however long it takes for them to sell all of the drugs in a house that they've cocooned, which basically means taken over. Um, it may it may belong to a drug de- uh, a drug addict. And they made us literally move into the person's house and told them we're staying here, and they will sell drugs out of that house and uh, yeah, some of the kids have been as, young as as young as eight years old. The person that I have spoke to was ten years old when he started, and um, yeah it's seen as very, very normal, which was uh, a bit surprising to me because in my background, um, I was around a lot of street culture growing up and we always had people that went OT, went out of town, um, country, but it was always tending to be people that were more of age. Or a lot of times females were used to carry drugs previously to um, kids being used. So when I found out just how young some of the kids were that were making these journeys on trains, like, I was completely perplexed. I, I, I felt like maybe my educating on what's going on around me in the streets and stuff is not where it should be because I didn't even know that, that was going on to the point where I thought it was a sensationalised um, headline when I first heard about it, but it really is going on, and um, it's something that is widely used to try to benefit uh, the making of money by a lot of the groups who are, who are selling these drugs. Is there a key factor in this
3: as well, like vulnerability? Is it because we've got social deprivation out there, or is it just the trade evolves like any other trade does and therefore it's always finding ways to circumvent the system and, and get around it what are the root causes of why we've got new ways of doing things and why so many people with vulnerability and children are getting involved
1: I think it's a combination of both um, I think there definitely is uh, a lot of social deprivation to do with it because one thing that did surprise me when I spoke to a lot of the, uh, the guys who were actually selling these kids out into country to sell drugs is that they would say that a lot of the young people would actually approach them um, in many cases, they're seeing them in the area. They see that they've got a nice car now. They might have nice clothing or whatever it may be, and they're like, "Look, what are you doing? Like, I want to be involved. Whatever you're doing, I want to be involved. Help me to be involved. These guys are teaching the kids how to cook crack. I'm teaching them the um, the process of doing it. I'm teaching them how to bag up, which is basically putting the uh, the drug parcels into packages. I'm teaching them how to even um to to plug it as well, using vaseline and whatever it may be, and giving them an education in the streets as as young as as primary school age, which is unbelievable. But then there's also uh, a combination with it being... um, (sighs) There is a lot of it to do with um, young people uh, and just people in general feeling like I haven't got an opportunity to to earn any real money in life. No one's going to hire me. A lot of people were saying to me, no one's going to hire me, I'm not going to get a job. There's a sense of hopelessness and... Hopelessness in a position where they feel where, where they haven't got a lot, so they're thinking, well, the only thing for me to do is do something like this. So in many cases, it's seen as the only viable option in their life which to me, once again, is is a bit confusing because I do come from this situation and I I have seen people... A lot of my friends were involved in in that kind of stuff. Some of my friends still are involved. I say friends. Acquaintances still are involved in that kind of lifestyle. But then there are a lot of people as well who have taken themselves and actually made sure they've done something with their life and strived hard to do it. They may not be achieving or making what they were making when they were selling drugs, but it's it's about actually having that determination or that that guile within you to actually try and do something different in your life. Um, So... It was, a very, it, was, it was hard for me. It was hard for me because a part of me felt very empathetic, but then a part of me also felt like, I feel like some people are making excuses here. But it's a hard dynamic. Um, I, I, even now, I still struggle with trying to understand where I, where I stand in regards to it. But one thing that I am is that I'm just shocked to see how young some of these people are.
3: And it's weird as well, isn't it? It's not just black markets, is it? There's grey markets as well, and this is something that I'd imagine Peter and Danny specifically know about, is it's it's not always that big crime lord. It can be someone that's plaster and wants something on the side, so therefore a little bit of weed deaning or coke deaning just goes in hand, in hand at the pub at night.
0: Well, back in the 80s, before, well, as the real explosion of cocaine came around, it hadn't been the drug of choice, purely and simply because it wasn't available to the plasterers and the plumbers and the chippies and the painters and decorators. But as its popularity increased, as the ability of smugglers to bring it into the country became greater and we suddenly became awash with cocaine, which we hadn't previously been, all of a sudden it filtered down and it became the drug of choice because it was available for the working class man. Like so many drugs, they had previously been the preserve of rock and roll, the entertainment industry, uh, and, and the like. But as they became more prolific, uh, as they became more, more available, so then, of course, more people took them. And, and that, that whole supply and demand fed the need, fed the need, and, of course, there was plenty of people willing, able, and, and very, very capable of being able to bring those drugs into the country, which is still the case today. But I'd just like to pick up for a moment, if I may, on what Aaron was talking about. I want to deny these 10 year olds, these 12 year olds, these 14 year olds, the 20 year olds, the 40 year olds, whatever age they are, I want to deny them the opportunity to make a living out of selling drugs, because I want to wrestle that industry away from them and regulate it. And yes, Put it under government control. Of course, they will have to have strategic partners. And I could be here for days talking about my vision of it, but I'll try and give you a snapshot as as the evening progresses. I just want to wrestle that away from them. I don't want a 14-year-old who is brought up in an area of social deprivation to think, as a career choice, he can get a mountain bike, a mobile phone, a 9mm pistol and be a drug dealer. I want to deny them all of that. And the three main strands which will allow us to do that, if we live in a regulated drug world, we will have to beat the villains on three strands. That is price, purity and availability. This ain't going to be a cakewalk. Armed, organised crime is not going to give up its major revenue stream without a fight. It's going to take incredibly brave politicians well no just brave and sensible it's going to take that kind of politicians and it's going to take a groundswell of opinion from business from the from from the public and from people like leap to drive it forward it can happen it will happen it will happen in my children's lifetime i hope i live long enough to see it It will definitely happen in my children's lifetime. The drug law reform movement is an unstoppable force, and the war on drugs is going to be consigned to the dustbin of history.
3: I think we have a round of applause for that. I don't know if you follow the podcast uh, Stop and Search, you should have a leaflet our social media guy kindly handed them out just then, and our producers now waving them around, but if you follow us on social media you get little snapshots of little videos of quotes, and I think we just found like a hundred of Peter just then that we can put out there. Uh, Can I have a quick show of hands, who actually believes in drug law reform, if you can put your hand up so that's the majority of us in this room we're amongst friends which is really interesting because we've we've noticed a bit of a sway in in our audience of late of when we first started it there was people just coming on for the entertainment factor of of seeing famous people uh talk about drugs but now we seem to get more and more people that are actually involved and if you can actually get involved that's what helps us out it's all good good us preaching what we know here but we do need a groundswell, as Peter said. Um, so this is where you can get involved, follow some social media, all that kind of thing I said about earlier. That would probably get cut out on the main show as well, by the <laughs> way. So. Um, but, Danny, I want to speak to you again, because uh, going on the back of what Peter just said, um, it, you must have seen, again, both sides of the, the coin, of people that are of vulnerability that are getting swept into the drug trade. Um, and then also arresting people, you think, is this doing... A lot of good to them and their and their livelihoods, and as you said, you've got personal experience within this as well. So, at what point did the the evolution of mindset for you? Um, because I know what position you are now, because we had a slight conversation over email. Um, it was there a point where you was like, "No, actually, th- things aren't making sense. I do need to readdress the balance."
2: I think. um I think the point when I said about the baby that really hit me hard because I hadn't seen something like that before. Um, And also just seeing things in the press, the challenges, the other side of it, rather than saying, like, we've, you know, well done, you've had an arrest, people are saying, well, why have you arrested them? What about actually not arresting anybody, saving the resources, the law uh, enforcement resources that we've got, free the the courts of all these petty crimes, because they are petty crimes, because if we regulated them, the courts would be free and we could actually start punishing real criminals and actually punishing them properly. Um, and not keeping suspended sentences, like we've been given out, like, sweets at the minute. Um, and I think that was the point I actually just grew up and thought, I'm going to listen to what other people's perspectives are. And then realise actually, I agree more with the other perspective than the one that I thought I did. Um, and what you were saying about vulnerability, I just wanted to touch on that, because seeing it from a covert perspective, it's 100% vulnerability... But it's not just from those that live in um, sort of rough areas or deprived areas. I've seen it from the other side as well, where you've got, you know, mummy and daddy are very rich, and their daughter is extremely vulnerable. But she will become a mule quite happily because she's getting the attention. She's vulnerable, but she's not from a socially deprived area. But I think the key word is 100% vulnerable, not necessarily from somewhere deprived.
3: And this is where journalism and the police operations are very similar, because you do cover a lot of the same realms. You, you get to the root causes of why people are doing what they're doing. You get to the point where you need the story to, to find out why there is a drug trade in the first place. And this is what your films are great at, is to actually project what people are going through. And it's not a clear-cut matter, is it? It's not just a case of, oh, I've had to be in a drug dealer now. There's reasons behind it, isn't there, from what you've seen in your films?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think you raise a, a good point. Um, even uh young men from uh more affluent backgrounds where they have you know nice families and stuff sometimes not even just um being kind of duped into it sometimes they kind of want they're attracted to the lifestyle they're attracted to to the to the to the element of being involved with um people who are seen as more uh i guess dangerous uh it seems more cool because they're you know they're They've got respect on the streets, and I've seen that as well. Where you've got um, young men and young females who are from a completely different type of background that are just really attracted to this type of lifestyle. Um, it happens a lot, it happens a lot, it happens loads. But then what happens is, due to their vulnerability, they they, they tend to be to be used. Like they they don't realise that the situation that they're in is actually one where they're being used. They're being put in situations where ultimately. The people who are doing it know that they may get caught, or they may get whatever may happen to them. But they don't care because they know that this person is just so happy to be in with the cool crowd that they'll do anything to be in. And that's another side of things that I've seen that is actually really unfortunate as well because it's happened a lot. Um, but yeah, there's loads of different factors. Um, it's 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 been a it's been a hard journey for me because um, in many cases uh, it's a bit too relatable because. Um, Like, I didn't mention this on the, on the, on the series, but my actual best friend is, um, he's dead now. Um, he actually was running the county line in, um, in Scotland. Up to now, I don't really know the the true story of how he was killed, but I didn't want to mention it on the show because his mum is still grieving. Um, but it's just that when I was, when I met these young men and, I just felt really emotional after I spoke to them in interviews and I didn't understand why I felt emotional because I consider myself to be quite a tough person <laughs> Like I'm quite tough but I think what it is is that in in many cases I could see where their life was going but they couldn't see it and that for me was this very distressing and I was talking to uh, I was talking to you earlier as well about this and I was saying that I actually don't know anymore what to do I don't know what to do to get through to some of the young people, the ones that are, especially the ones that are ruthless. Like some of them have told me like outright that they're willing to kill for their respect or for the right amount of money in terms of if somebody owes them money. And I've got to the point now where I'm like, I don't know exactly what I or we can do to really try and stem or intercept this. And I think that is what's really distressing for me. I truthfully don't know what we can do to, especially with the uh, the spate of violence that we're seeing. Um recently there's literally stabbings every other day. I heard about one two days ago. Just then it's like it keeps on happening and it's really, really worrying.
0: Can I talk about the call cool bit but you yeah. know and the allure and yeah. the mystique and all that sort of stuff? I was a rebellious kid. I'm sure many of us in, in this room were. And I am utterly convinced that so much drug taking by people who are young is because it's an act of rebellion. We've all done it throughout history teenagers have rebelled. So because it's illegal, and they can't really do it. So they do. First of all, they find a dealer that can do balloons, right? Something that wasn't around in my time, but lots of kids are doing now, right? Then of course, they might move on to something else. They might want to have a smoke or a tab or this that, and the other. In my vision of the regulated world, on a Saturday night, for example, in what we'll call the drugstore. I know that's very unimaginative and some marketing guru will come up with a better name than that, right? But on a Saturday night, some 16, 17 or 18 year old could be in my regulated world queuing up fine to buy their tablets because they're going out clubbing. Right? Absolutely fine if that's what they choose to do. But of course, three people behind them in the queue might be their granddad who's getting a spliff for the night to go home and watch, well, to smoke while he's watching Strictly, right? (laughs) So how uncool is it going to become when it is completely regulated and accessible? That whole bit about the mystique and the teenage rebellion will just disappear. Everybody can do it. Everybody in this room can go and buy a drug. From a safe, regulated, licensed outlet where we know what the contents are, where we get advice on how to take it. Kids, it's not so cool now, is it?
3: And and we can back that up with figures as well, because we know both from was released in this country, usage doesn't tend to go up under regulated systems. And we also know from uh, places like Sweden, uh, not Sweden, Switzerland, when when you've got heroin in maintenance, it doesn't tend to affect usage. It just means people are safer. So we know that it works it's just a case of how do we get that across in the media and this is something you touched upon Danny is that and this is why it's a fascinating combination between the three of you is that you've all got professional media backgrounds now but also from very different angles being an investigative investigative reporter I I knew I was going to fluff that line I was going to I have to cue myself up for investigative and it comes up quite a lot in this subject Uh, but we've also got someone that's come from uh, covert policing that's gone into the media so you it's a fascinating dynamic between the three of you and danny you touched upon the media and how it interacts what has been your experience both sides of the coin within the media is is it useful to use messaging um when we're trying to get to sort of demographics to deter um and also just in general terms how useful is the media in getting things across
2: i think that's one of them ones that whatever i say i've got a counter argument for and that's myself um I think when you read, when you see things like this and you read about Leap, you're like, oh, that makes complete sense. Like, how can that not make sense? Then you'll watch um, one of these American um, shows where you were saying about the violence and the kids and their honour killing to become part of the gang and they look so cool because they're all tattooed and muscly and got all the chicks hanging off of them. Then it makes it glamorous, so that looks appealing. So that doesn't help. Um, I don't think the press, I think the work that you're doing is amazing and it's like, really highlighting the fact that we've got big issues um but i don't think the media the day-to-day media helps us in any way at all at all i don't think it even wants to entertain the idea at the moment you don't see it enough to for it to be taken seriously which is an absolute shame and like Black said it just takes somebody um a politician that's brave um sensible and actually smart um, something which we're really struggling with at the minute in the UK. Yeah.
3: <laughs> it's almost like you need a moratorium, isn't it? Just go, look, let's desensitise the issue. Let's it's just...
2: just common sense. Like, like, And I would be intrigued to see the people that are against it, have they ever actually come across it themselves real life other than what they see on the TV.
0: Our Prime Minister was at the dispatch box five or six weeks ago propagating and pronouncing and supporting the war on drugs. I thought I'd entered a bloody time warp and it was 1985. I could not believe what I was hearing. That's what you're up against. But I think it's probably Aaron's turn. But I'll tell you how this this movement will will start to put a strategy, a strategy together to, to win the debate.
3: Actually, why I've got you here, Peter, that is actually a good point because we've found that a lot of reform is coming from police level, whether it's at PCC. Uh, the PCC uh, role, Police and Crime Commissioner, has been a strange one for us because we first of all thought, God, politicising the police—that's a bad idea—but it's worked in benefit for us because it means a lot of them are coming forward saying, actually, there's something we can do with this. And we're seeing chief constable level, um, and historically chief constable level. There's a lot of people in your field, Daniel. And Peter, that are actually going no, Let's sort this out now.
2: But that's because they've actually seen firsthand what it, what actually happens. That's what I mean. Like if you've actually seen it firsthand and physically seen what it's doing to people and how a simple it is simple a simple change of regulating it. I'm the ins and outs of it won't be, but to make the decision to make it regulated is easy. Um, it it it's just they're going to agree with it because they see it day to day, every single day as a co- a copper. If, unless you're rubbish, um, you should be seeing that, because it's on the streets.
3: What, what was the mood like, Pete? Oh, just as you pick up your... Sorry about that. That was a great timing on my part.
0: <laughs> Reform before alcohol, I'm that committed. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that is what we want to hear. There's a slogan there. Um, what was it like in your evolutional phase of being in the police, right back to the, to the late 70s, up into the 2000s, when... What was the mood like in your general circles? Was there an appetite for reform or did you just go, no, let's just lock them all up?
0: No, no. When I went to Scotland Yard, there was no appetite for reform. It was our war. We were, we were a part of it and we were going to win it. right Righto. Um, but of course, we were supportive, resources were thrown at us, our numbers increased, um, purely and simply because the scale of the problem was increasing. Um, But we were committed and we thought we were good against evil and all that kind of short-sighted nonsense which our Prime Minister propagated at the dispatch box not so many weeks ago. Um, It was short-sighted, of course it was. And uh, and the need for reform is enormous. But, right, and it's a big but, it's going to be a legislative challenge because virtually everywhere you look at and everywhere you think about will have to alter their rules and their regulations for example this bar here this evening the licensing the licensed premises will have a choice to make do they permit drug taking or don't they because just because drugs suddenly become regulated doesn't mean to say that you can people will be able to take them where they like when they like it will be like alcohol cigarettes you know in 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 my vision of it okay so Licensed premises will have to decide whether they permit drug taking or not. And it will be their choice as as to how stridently they they enforce that or not. Um, But, you know, the way this argument will be won, okay, we live in a capitalist world, of course we do, or certainly in a capitalist country. So what's going to sway the debate and win the argument? Money. So what should the drug law reform movement be doing? It should be reaching out to people with money, people who dictate money, and that will be the licensed industry for a start. That would be, if I could commit full-time, if I had the time and money to commit full-time for drug law reform, my first stop would be to the bodies that govern licensed premises. And I would start by getting that industry on board and giving them the choice. Will you permit or won't you? Do you want to be licensed for drug-taking or not? It's entirely your choice. But then once you start getting people and the economy involved, once you start making an argument that is based solely around money, the politicians will listen. So what premises will want to be licensed and what won't? And then when you start chipping away and you start getting the people with the deep pockets on board, then you'll start making politicians
3: listen they're great two words money and industry and this is two words that specifically roll into your work aaron that the people that are involved in the current illicit trade are making quite a lot of money or some are but then some examples aren't i think it was you used an example in in your films that there was someone that did a lot of work for not a lot of gain and it was just status symbols, a lot of it but also just the peer pressures that come with the the street trade do you think that the, the allure of money and status within the streets is still something that we have to contend with right
1: now. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's the main thing, but one thing that's quite important is that uh, a lot of the, the young boys, or even young men in some cases, who are doing the hand to in, the peddling on the streets, they're, not, they're making money, but they're not making that much. All of them came to me and said to me. Um, actually, one of them, the, game, the main guy that sends the young kids out into country, he said to me, "I don't want to say too." He said to me, "I don't want to say too much because I could possibly lose my life." But the guy that I go to see to get what I'm getting is the guy that's in a suit. And if I showed you to him, you would never believe that he's the guy that's controlling, or not controlling, but controlling my flow anyway of where, of where I get my drugs from. And I think a major issue that happened uh, during the making of that film is that a lot of people were were echoing a similar sentiment in that okay, these guys who maybe I'm speaking to are making you know, more money than they would for their age but the real guys who are making the money are the ones that nobody sees and they're also the ones who seem to be untouchable because when I spent time in Staffordshire Police I was saying, okay, I understand what you're saying but if you know that there is someone who is running a county line who is making all this money why are you not going after him or her? Because and, there's a big difference between knowing and proving. That's what he said to me. That's exactly what he said to me. Because uh, this a person may have the county line right here in London, but the line is actually selling drugs in in Cheshire. He's telling them where to go to um to drop off the drugs or where to where to pick them up from, but he's not actually ever in the area where it's happening. So he's got the safety of having this unregistered phone, uh, nothing to connect him to it. And he's controlling all of that from an isolated location, which means ultimately this person is impossible to um, to track down or even to to you know to bring to justice. And for me, that is the major problem. It's like we keep on taking out all of the little peddlers, you know, arresting the peddlers, putting them in jails for or, yeah, suspended sentences. Exactly. Exactly or the same, yeah. or like or, or for little durations of time. But the real problem still stays there. And they're still controlling this. And as soon as these, these young ones are taken out of, the, out of that, out of that um, situation, they're quickly replaced. Replaced just like that by younger and younger people as well.
0: I was fortunate enough when I was at the yard and on other serious and organised crime squads, we took out the big boys. We took out the international players, people that went, crossed oceans and countries and borders and thought they acted with impunity. We had the resources... We had the informants, we had the tactics. We took out people at the very highest echelons of, of global drug dealing. We took them out. But it was the same old story like it is when you take out that 10-bag dealer on the street. The minute you take them out, they are going to be replaced. The way to really, really hurt them is in the pocket and rip their industry away from them. Deny them the opportunity. It can be done, it will be done.
3: This seems to spark with you, Danny. You seem to really agree with what Aaron was saying about the little guys are getting it, but still not getting to Mister Big, and you seem to really sort of light up for that point.
2: Yeah, I just think, like I said earlier, when you have done like decoy ops or, or low level um, covert operations, and you are going to get through the supply of drugs and you're getting them off these kids, like we're in, like you know we we're, we're incriminating them. I know they're doing it, and it is a crime. I know that but like, yeah, no, like you said they're replaced as soon as they're nicked they're replaced within seconds they are not you know they're not important in the chain the big guy doesn't care about the little guy at all and they're the ones, that are the ones with the biggest risk they're not much money but they're hoping that they're going to get up the chain and become one of the bigger boys and it's just really sad and going back to what you said about money that's what's so shocking is the government could get so much money if they regulated it I don't understand why they don't
3: want it. It's just—it's that moralistic position, isn't it? They don't want to be seen to be going, like drug free-for-all, and and, and it's just tragic that we're not having an evidence-based discussion based on moral panic. Um, And this is something that has been really interesting watching as I've been researching this. Uh, The the work that you do in the police and what you do in investigative journalism really runs parallel because you're reliant on those, as we said, lower-level people to be new informants, and this is something in your book, and I imagine in your work, Danny, as well, that you've had to rely on informants quite a lot. Um, have they got a place? Have they got... Um, are we being harsh towards them, or do we actually need to still have those low-level dealers in place to actually do further along police work? Every level of police work, no matter
0: what kind of crime it's tackling, needs informants. They're the lifeblood of inf- information and intelligence flow. They're a necessary evil. I handled dozens of them two of mine got shot, by the way, I didn't shed a tear. But they were a very, very necessary evil in in the fight against crime. Um, they helped us globally and domestically. Um, they are just part and parcel of law enforcement. They always have been, and they always will be. Have you had much connection, Danny, to, to informants?
3: And-
2: well, yeah. As a, as a covert officer, you become an informant yourself, because you're immersing yourself in that. You're becoming one of them. Um, so you're the one then going back and feeding it back to your your handler or your um, investigating officer. So, yeah, you are becoming them, and I have seen it from the flip side, like um, Bleck said, where you are the handler and you're... And, yeah, you, you need it, because if you're not without them, we don't really know what's going on, not the real stuff. And that's where people like you come in and then confirm it, and it's, they're more, people are more likely to talk to you than they are to a copper. Let's be honest. Okay, but
1: you say that, but a lot of my old friends now think that I'm informing. Yeah,
2: Yeah, that's <laughs> with true. What I'm, with imagine. what I'm
1: doing. And I've noticed that some of my old friends, are uh, they deal with me a bit differently now because they've seen the shows that I'm doing, but I don't really care because I feel like there's a greater issue here that needs to be um uncovered, revealed and also addressed. So it is what it is. And
3: it is a very similar pattern, isn't it? Because you've in your films you there were certain people that you really wanted that were hard to get hold of but then you do manage to tease them out and it's the same process as what these guys are doing isn't it if you've got to investigate the work to find those real nuggets of information are they increasingly more difficult the more that your profile goes up because as you said a lot of people are going to be treating you differently now do you think that there is going to be a point where people are going to be a bit more
1: resentful towards you um yeah definitely um Depends but, where you park your land, though. <laughs> 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 but um, one thing that I noticed is because I'm um, a lot of my... Um, like the f- I keep saying friends, but let's just say acquaintances, or people that I know is a better word that I use just for the police officers inside that may be watching me. Um, uh, people that I know that, um, that ask me about the shows, they're like, "But first of all, are saying, why? And how are, you, and how are you speaking to these people? Why are they speaking to you? Um, one thing that I always say is, I noticed that a lot of people that speak to me or speak to us, uh, well, not you, but us in terms of who make the um, the films, um, they actually really want to get their, their perspective across. A lot of them were like, do you know what, I really want to try and explain, uh, uh, show to people what's actually really happening in the streets. Like a lot of people, like, one of them even said to me, a lot of people are glamorizing this trap life. Trapping this basically means selling drugs, um, the trapping life, but I actually want people to see that there's nothing glamorous about this. And that was actually quite, um, quite surprising to me. A lot of them said that. They wanna, they, they, their whole point of talking to me was, I wanna, obviously that their, their faces were covered, but they want to actually tell the true story of what's happening in the streets because there is a lot of glamorizing of it through music, through media, whatever it is, through films. But a lot of them actually just really want to explain in depth and in, in as truthful as possible what is really happening. It is getting more difficult, though, um, especially when, uh, for instance, in, this, in eight years old and smuggling drugs, we had someone who was going to come down from... Oh, is it Brighton? I think it was something like that to come and speak to us. Um, but we were supposed to meet them. Sorry if you're from Brighton. <laughs> 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 but we were meant to meet them in a trap house, which is basically a house where drugs are sold out of. Um, then last minute, the uh, the lawyers at um, Channel Five and at ITN were like, "Whoa, whoa! Right, you're going into a trap. There's too many uh, variables that could lead to you being harmed." So we're having to kind of like delay, and then in the end, having to reschedule with the guy that we was or the guys that we were supposed to meet that really caused the problem and they were very angry you know you, you know you can't be wasting our time and you can't be saying that like these people here have a lot to lose and they're coming out of their way to meet you and it's like those situations they're very important because if you if you destroy that trust there will never be trust again and that kind of had like a follow-on effect with the uh, with the guy who was acting as acting as a fixer for us and it's like it led to us losing a lot of access um I don't know if it's going to stop us getting access into speaking to people because you'd be surprised to know how many people really want to tell their story. Like one of the one of the major contributors in eight years old and smuggling drugs was how old was he? Um, a sixteen year old uh, white lad from I think he's from South London. Um, and I don't know if you remember when he was talking about uh, the f- the whole family that got killed um, because the boy owed somebody a debt. But he, he, there was so much more that he said. And it was just so powerful and also very emotional. There was times when he was talking to me when I could tell his voice was cracking, and he wanted to cry. And I think it's just that, it's that passion, it's that, it's that you need to hear my story because you don't actually know what's going on. Like, I'm risking my life. <laughs> I'm, I'm abs- I actually don't want to be in this, I hate this shit. That's what he said to me off camera, I hate this shit. Like I would, I would love to go and work a, work a job, but he, he says to me that he feels like he can never get a job. I, I told him that's completely not the truth. You could come out, but it's hard to tell someone who is so entrenched in this lifestyle that you could come out of it. And what's even more worrying is that he's 16 years old mm-hmm. and he's so entrenched in a street, drug and road lifestyle. Uh, there's really a lot of issues that we need to to really look at. And I, I don't know if people realize just how deep it is. No 16-year-old boy should feel like he's so deeply involved in, in, in drug culture that he can't, he can't get out. He's, he's still a child.
3: Thank you so much for listening, and that's the end of part one, and I'm just about to sit down to edit part two in a minute. So I'm going to get in a quick few thank yous. Thank you, of course, to the guests on that who are just superb, but also thank you to my name is Ad for all the artwork you do us. Please go and find him for all your artwork needs. He's amazing. Thank you so much to Tristan and Nikki, the producers, because without them, you would not be listening to me ramble on as we speak. So thank you to them. Thank you to John, Distraction Pieces Network social media guy. Listen to his podcast at Dream Factory. It's brilliant. It's incredible. I can't wait to get on it. Thank you to John, our UK Leap social media worker. And this is where I have to get them right. Go find us at UK Leap on Twitter, at UK Leap on Instagram, UKLeap.org on Facebook and UKLeap.org, our website. Right. Yes. And of course, thank you to all the Distraction Pieces Network. They are fantastic shows. Go and find them you will not be sorry. Right, on that note, I'm going to go and edit part two. So, wish me luck because, you know, goodness knows they, they speak a lot of sense and they speak a lot of good sound bites within this as well. So, thank you so much to our guests. I'll speak to you soon. Bye.
1: Behind your barricade.